Mega Calling, a bi-monthly podcast with sound-rich reports from our correspondents on the continent. African voices reporting on African stories produced by Radio France International. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Africa Calling podcast on March 19th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have a number of stories from our correspondents on the African continent this week, including how Kenyan farmers are stepping in for the birds and bees to give their crops a helping hand. We also take a look at the reasoning behind why COVID-19 spiked in Ghana earlier this year. And in Malawi, how one prison is helping the environment and saving time and money. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. Africa Calling. In Kenya, farmers are seeing the long-term drastic effects of using pesticides. Fewer insects, which play a key role in pollination, mean smaller crop yields. That's why farmers are pollinating not only by insect, but by human hand, to make sure their fruits and vegetables flourish. Correspondent Victor Maturi met some farmers in Makaweni County, eastern Kenya, and filed the following report. There is a fine breeze in Mbakoni village in Makweni County, Kenya, where the use of pesticides has affected pollination process on crops, leading to poor yields. According to agriculture experts, pollination is the transfer of pollen from a male part of a plant to a female part of a plant, which helps to fertilize and produce seeds. This is most often aided by an insect, an animal, or by wind. Excessive use of pesticides has been cited as a major element killing natural pollination agents such as insects in farms. Joseph Mbidi, father of three, attends to his maize plantation. Mbidi says he has experienced low production for two years now. We are mostly affected by pesticides because they have killed most of the pollinators which uh, pollinate our food. Uh, that has uh, affected even the production. It is low as we compare today and uh, yesteryears. Uh, pollinators like bees... Butterflies are not available due to chemicals which are sprayed within, we, we spray in our farms. Mbidi says the use of chemicals such as herbicides, insecticides, and nematicides, a type of chemical used to kill parasites on plants, has interfered with natural pollinators. That's why farmers have turned to hand pollination to boost crop yields. This is by transferring pollen grains from one plant to another. Mr. Mbidi says he uses a toothbrush, a homemade brush and soft sponge to put pollen on the female part of the plant, scientifically known as a stigma. He says he was trained by a local agriculture organization. When I'm doing the anti-pollination, I normally pick up pollen from the male first and then I bring to the female. And uh, the pollen you can use a brush. They need when they are wet because also they are alive they, so that they can pollinate. If there is no pollination, most of them they normally dry up. So pollination is very important. There are various types of pollination process. According to Dr. Fitz Trutich, agriculture entomologist at Egerton University located in the Rift Valley region. We have two types of pollination. There is what we call self-pollination and in self-pollination it is whereby now the pollen grains from the same flower goes to the stigma of the same flower. Then we have cross-pollination. And in cross-pollination, the pollen grains have to be taken by another, an extra force to leave the flower of, of this plant to the flower of the next plant. And then we have pollination through animals. And these animals, they could be birds, and then they could also be insects. 
And then there is now pollination where it has to be really called assisted pollination. And this is where man comes in and takes manually, manual pollination. In neighboring Kiambu County, Samuel Nderitu is a well-known farmer and a trainer. He is applying pollen to a pumpkin crop using a brush. He says for the past four years, his farm has been producing poor yields compared to the previous years. Nderitu realized he was excessively using pesticides on crops after some agriculture extension officers visited his farm. But the hardest one is the cross pollination, which requires some insect to move from one part to another, carrying the, the pollen grains is a bit hard because the, the pollinators are not there, or they are very few. Therefore, it's, not, it's very hard for them to be pollinated. So you have to make sure that th- those plants have been pollinated. Either you, you carry the, the pollen grain yourself and pollinate them, or you do the, the, the hand pollination, or you shake those plants very well so that the pollen grain will move from one place to another, maybe transferred by the wind. On the Ritu's farm, approximately 100 crops are pollinated on daily basis with simple locally made brushes. Part of the workforce is usually provided by local trainees. He learned that planting different types of crops, constructing water pans near the farm will encourage pollination. The Ritu now grows maize, beans, sorghum, pumpkins and spinach, while yellow and viola purple type of flowers are planted specifically around the fence of his farm to attract pollinators such as bees, birds and butterflies. Excessive use of pesticides has been cited as the major elements killing natural pollination agents such as insects in farms. Insect expert Dr. Tritich points out human activities such as deforestation, monocropping and intensive farming have also contributed to the decline of pollinators. So when these pollinators die, it means the pollination reduces and even productivity of these crops start reducing. It tells us that when you overuse pesticides, you will reduce pollinators. When you reduce pollinators, you will re- reduce crop productivity. Not all produce is the same. Some crops are fertilized in different ways. Crops such as mangoes, cucumber, sweet melon, citrus depend heavily on pollinators like bees and other insects. Leafy green vegetables like kale and spinach mainly depend on self-pollination, while maize, sorghum, wheat, carrots and bananas are mostly pollinated by wind. Dr. Sandy Ekesi, a research scientist and a director of research at the International Center of Insects and Philosophy, ISIPE in Nairobi, explains the importance of birds, bees and wind for the production of food we eat. 75% of crop plants require animal-mediated uh, pollination. And a recent uh, analysis that globally, uh, the market value of pollination is estimated at between 235 to 577 billion dollars annually. That's huge. Let's tell you how massive. Without pollination, you go to your grocery shop, you will see nothing. There will be no fruits and vegetables. Dr. Ikesi says that in other African countries, farmers are practicing hand pollination. Tanzania, Ethiopia, Senegal, Burkina Faso, the Comoros and Nigeria are also doing this as well as adding certain insects into the environment, including putting beehives near farms to attract pollinators. But by adding bees and supplementing with beehives, you increase your productivity by over 180%. However, last year, 
Farmers and other lobby groups in Kenya petitioned Parliament to ban the importation of pesticides which are harmful to the crops. The pesticides include Roundup and Maladion, which contains toxic ingredients. For now, Kenyan farmers are trying to increase their yields, protect their crops and their health by hand-pollinating fruits and vegetables. However, eliminating pesticides will encourage nature's pollinators, such as birds and insects, to return. For RFI's African Calling, this is Victor Muturi in Makweni County, Eastern Kenya. Check us out on Twitter, Africa underscore underscore calling. We're at Africa underscore underscore calling. Ghana, the West African country of 30 million people, is struggling to contain the COVID-19 pandemic as numbers continue to rise. This nearly a year after the government imposed a temporary partial lockdown. Correspondent Zubaida Mabuno Ismail is in the capital, Accra, to find out what Ghanaians think about COVID-19, as well as what new government efforts are being made. It's a typical Tuesday morning in downtown Accra. Public and private sector workers and traders getting on and off the bus. The majority are maskless. Thus, as numbers of COVID-19 cases are going up in Ghana's capital. A preacher of the gospel stands up to preach. He is one of the only four passengers among the 22 who wore surgical masks. Passenger Kennedy Mantel listens to the preacher, his face mask in his pocket. When I wear it for so long, I feel suffocated. So that's why I don't feel like wearing it. At the Mikesh Salon in Adabraka, a suburb of Accra, Clients are getting their hair done. Only one out of the four wears a face mask, while one out of the six staff on duty wears a face mask. Here, clients are not required to wash their hands nor are their temperatures checked. David Tay, a client, contends Ghana's recorded cases are a hoax. I'm not really scared uh, of the numbers because uh, it's just the numbers appears on the screen, but uh, it's very hard for us to witness it around our communities or neighborhoods. Because ever since the COVID came since last year, uh, I've never known anyone or come across someone in my area who has ever getting caught with COVID. I only experienced the COVID patients on the TV and when the minister comes online to talk. But Ghana has not only recorded imported cases, but has also recorded community infections where patients had no travel history. For people like David, staff of the Mekesh Salon, and passengers of most public transport, COVID-19 is a virus of the rich in Ghana. Another aspect of mask wearing is the lack of enforcement. And it didn't help that politicians, including President Nane Kufado and his opponents, who were on TV daily during the campaigning cycle in December, held large campaign rallies with no social distancing. A lecturer at the Ghana Medical School, Dr. Benedict Kalistegu, has said the country has to improve on its risk communication and social mobilization if it wants to reduce the current upsurge in cases. By the close of November, our active cases were in the 200s and 300s. And even though the politicians would not admit that their political rallies contributed, because they will tell you the data does not support it. If you haven't collected data 
you don't have any empirical evidence. So we had the political rallies. We had the voting. Then you know the festive mood also kicked in. So you realize that beyond December, we started having the disease in clusters, families. So you sometimes find a family of four, a family of five, everybody infected. I believe these were some of the drivers that has led us to where we are now. Ghanaians have taken note of the lax enforcement of mask wearing and alleged underreporting of cases, but so has the government. By January 17th, the country's COVID treatment centers had gone from having zero patients to now being full because of the upsurge in infections. The Ghana Health Service is recording on the average 700 new cases of COVID on a daily basis. At least 17 members of parliament and 151 parliamentary staff have been infected with COVID as of mid-February. Why on earth would a parliamentarian show up in parliament knowing very well that he or she is positive? What punitive measures were meted out to these leaders so that it will serve as a deterrent to the rest of us? However, people will follow the rules but only if enforced. After about four months of inactivity, the government is now enforcing strict COVID-19 measures in order to stop the spread of the virus. The country has also recorded a new COVID-19 variant, says Ekufu Ado. Our aim is to vaccinate the entire population with an initial target of 20 million people. Through bilateral and multilateral means, we're hopeful that by the end of June, a total of 17,600,000 vaccine doses would have been procured for the Ghanaian people. There is a renewed consciousness among Ghanaians as a number of Ghanaian public figures succumb to the virus. While bereaved families are nursing their losses, others are wondering when life will return to normal. Zubaida Mabono Ismail, RFI Africa calling Accra, Ghana. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. When it comes to cooking your meals, what source of energy do you use? In Malawi and in other African nations, firewood and charcoal are at the top of the list. But both the government and environmental campaigners in the southern part of Africa say deforestation has had a disastrous effect on the environment. One way to combat this would be to reduce using wood for energy or avoid it altogether. In southern Malawi, one prison is making the switch from wood to biogas. Correspondent Charles Pensulo reports from Mulanje, Malawi, on how this works and how it's had a positive impact not only for the environment but for the prisoners. Mulanje district in southern Malawi is one of the tourism attraction hotspots in the country. But severe deforestation and degradation has left a huge chunk of this place bare. Environmentalists are worried. One of the charities working in the districts helping poor households says severe deforestation in the district and the whole country is affecting people in a way that was never imagined before. Esther Mueso, program manager for United Purpose, says they introduced biogas digesters starting with the prison, one of the institutions which they say use a lot of wood. Uh, in prisons, there's the high use of firewood, 
uh, which leads to land degradation. So we first of all made assessments in the prisons in the three districts that we are working, that is Zomba, Mulanje and Sanje. So in Mulanje, after doing the assessments, we found out that they were using a lot of firewood, about 60 cubic meters of firewood per month. But on top of that, they were also spending 600,000 Malawi kwacha for electricity, but also firewood. That's why we decided to support Mulanje prison with the biogas installation. The charity installed the biogas digester at a cost of about 20,000 US dollars and they relies on the fecal matters from the sewer in the prison to produce the gas for cooking. Here in Mulanje prison, which houses some 200 inmates, operating the digester is part of inmate Julius Mota's day. United Papers trained inmate Mota and some other inmates and staff on how to maintain the system if something goes wrong. For Mota, life is easier now than when he first came in 2019. The biogas is assisting us prisoners when we cook our food. Every morning, we go and switch on the power system, and then we open the valve from the gas chamber, and the power heats our pot. Then we start cooking. The burger's digester is made from plastic, and it's about the size of a standard fuel tanker. It has an inlet chamber where the fecal matter is fed from the sewer system and an outlet chamber which removes the digested waste. Bacteria plays a crucial part in the system, processing the organic matter to methane. Contrary to popular belief, no smells from the biogas digesters reach the food, only the odorous gas. Inside the kitchen, prison chefs are cooking with two big pots, one using the gas and the other using electricity. Another inmate, Felix Chimombo, explains how the initiative has changed their living. When I first came here in 2018, we were struggling to cook because we were using firewood. We thank the organization that installed this biogas digester because the cooking process is faster and we don't struggle to chop wood. Things are much better now. George Chiwe, senior superintendent of prison for Mulanje, says that the prison and the environment has benefited from the biodigester. We used to have a very big problem of firewood. We used to procure a lot of firewood for cooking. As initially, we used to procure around 60 cubic meters of firewood per month, and this has been reduced to around 30 cubic meters per month. And this is usually as a backup in case there is a electricity blackout. Since we, we were currently using the biogas ports and electric ports. For the period we have used the biogas digester for methane gas, we have significantly improved in terms of cooking time. It's so fast, it's efficient. It used to take about five hours, but this technology has reduced the cooking time to around three hours. By three hours, the beans cooked up and ready to be served. 
the project hasn't reached 100% capacity because the volume of fecal matter produced by the prison per day is not enough to heat both cooking pots. While there were 400 prisoners when the system was first installed in June last year, authorities reduced the number of the prisoners to almost half to contain COVID-19. Still, the project has assisted the institution to reduce both wood and electricity being used. Tiwonge Gawa, Nation Chair for the Wildlife and Environmental Society of Malawi, applauded the initiative, saying similar projects will go a long way in reducing deforestation in the country. Institutions like prison buy firewood from traders who, she said, add to tree laws. Of course, in our knowledge, in terms of renewable energy, we think that biogas works best at crowded institutions. So a prison sounds like one of the places. So it's, you know, prison, secondary schools or primary schools, those kind of places where you have a lot of people in one place is a great place to put something like a biodigest, apart from, you know, where you have cattle and things also working, also works well. So I think it's really good because as we know, the reports, especially from Zomba, of the prison trucks coming down the mountain, carrying firewood, a lot of, they were a big, big market for the firewood and all the trees that are being cut down in Zomba. So them having an, a renewable gas alternative, it's really, really great. Apart from Molanche, two other prisons in the country are using biogas digesters to supplement energy at their institutions. It remains an ambitious project at the moment as other prisons continue to use firewood. But if the biogas digesters initiative can continue to other prisons and schools, the current challenges coming from massive deforestation might be undone. For RFI's Africa Calling, this is Charles Pensolo in Molanje, Malawi. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Hi, Laurangela. You've given me the perfect pretext this week to play something from a great duo from Malawi. They're called Madalitso Band, two young men, Yubu Maligwa and Yosef Kalikeni. They were discovered back in 2009 playing outside a shopping centre and they went on pretty quickly to record their first album, Wasalala. Now, they make their own musical instruments. You can hear a baba tone, that's a stringed instrument which is very popular in Malawi, and a four-string guitar, which makes a sound a bit similar to the banjo. But they definitely don't sing the blues. Their music is very uplifting, but it does deal with some difficult subjects, things that matter to people. The song I've chosen is called Ndalakwanji, which means what have I done wrong? And they say there are challenges everywhere, prices have gone up, there's disease, what have I done wrong? Musically, they're doing a lot of things right, though. Their performance at the virtual edition of Womex 2020 is a gem, and I would strongly recommend you see that online. Thanks for listening to episode 20 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with the lovely sounds of the Madalitso band. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. Goodbye for now.
Amato gailo, amato gailo, amato gailo, amato gailo.